This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're taking a look at the world of forensic botany, the study of how plants can help catch criminals. I'm joined by David Gibson, a professor of plant biology at Southern Illinois University. David's new book, Planting Clues, How Plants Solve Crimes, traces the rich history of botanists being called in to use their skills to help connect suspects to a crime scene or a place of interest. Before we dive in, I think it's worth a quick warning that this is a discussion of forensics and of crime scenes. So there will be talk of death and identifying the dead in what follows. To kick things off though, here's David explaining why plants are so useful when it comes to investigations. It's like any, it's, it's a part of the, the bigger picture for solving crimes. Um, and so plant evidence can, can help, uh, but they're useful because they, they really encompass quite a broad spectrum of, of sizes and scales. You know, big pieces of plants can be important, like smuggling of, a, of a wood or something, down to pieces of leaves can be important, down to uh, parts of plants that no one can see with the naked eye, pollen, spores, and, and tiny little diatoms, little algae, um, that a criminal will have no idea that they're transporting or carrying on their body or on, or on the mud on their shoes. Evidence that they just would have no, no idea that, that, that is going to incriminate them and link them to a crime scene. So plants are really quite useful uh, across a whole range of spectrum. Yeah, it definitely struck me that in a, a lot of the cases that you talk about, and we'll get we'll get to the, some some of those in a moment. Um, it it sort of feels like you can't escape 
plant matter <laughs> in one way or another. Is that is that true? I think it is true. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, every time we, we walk out in the woods or out into our garden, we're going to get a little bit of mud on our shoes and that mud is going to contain um, perhaps some plant seeds, some bits of leaves, um, things we can see. Uh, but it's also going to contain pollen. Um, just walking around, we're going to get pollen up our nose. We're going to get pollen on our eyebrows, in our hairline. And those are all sorts of evidence that can uh, be uh, extracted from uh, either a suspect or from a body. And so, yeah, some of these plant fragments and pieces are ubiquitous in the environment and they're, they're, they're everywhere. Mm, one of the examples in the book that really struck me was the diatoms. Yes. Uh, they can even be inside you in, in your bones. Is that right? Yes, that's the, the diatom drowning idea yeah. that um, when a body drowns in water, those last gasps of breath are so powerful trying to get something, some air into, into the lungs that um, the water gets through the, the alveoli in the lungs, the fine capillaries, and into the, into the bloodstream. And the heart is still beating. And so it's transporting blood around the body. And so these diatoms, which are tiny, can actually pass through into the blood and they'll end up in the major, in major organs like liver and end up in, in the bone marrow. And so if you find, if a, if a coroner in an autopsy finds diatoms in the bone marrow, the only way that those diatoms could have got there is the body was drowned. That's different to if a body was already dead and dumped in the water. And that's an important thing to know when you find a body in water. Yeah, yeah. Whether they were, uh, yeah, dumped there or um, sort of held there, I guess. Yeah. Um. And so, how how common? Again, so again, because because it, the 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 sort of the range of cases in the book is so uh, hugely varied. Um. How do you? How does? You know, botanists are called in as expert witnesses in a, in a number of cases. Is it something that is taught, or is it something that? is actually quite young and, and people are kind of, you know, um, you give lots of examples of different experiments that have to be done once uh, expert witnesses are called in. How, how common is forensic botany these days? Well, my understanding is that it's not as common as it might be implied by the plethora of cases that I talk about. Um, my understanding from talking to crime scene investigators is that uh, they normally don't think about the plants and they're not trained in plants. So I think in most cases, uh, this is a sort of evidence that's over, maybe overlooked. Right. Now, if something is, is noticed or seen or they're perhaps trying really hard to find, find some key evidence, um, they'll then have to find a botanist, basically, and, and to, to look, at the, look at the evidence now. Some people like uh, Mark Spencer and Patricia Wiltshire, a couple of British forensic botanists, uh, have been through their career called in to cases. And from what I understand from reading their work, you know, that they get somewhat routinely called in by um, when the police realise that there's there's a value in, in some botanical evidence. So I want to go into some of the, the examples in, in the book, um, but I thought first it might be worth... Um discussing the, the idea of the, the four-way linkage theory, mm -hmm. um, which you explained very well in the book. Can you just explain what that is and, and how sort of uh, a forensic botanist sort of fits into that 
uh, idea. Yeah, so the idea between that linkage theory is that you're trying to use evidence to link uh, a suspect and a body to a crime scene. So if you can use evidence, botanical evidence in this case, to show that a, a suspect was at the crime scene or with the body, then you've got these links. And so that's, that's simply the idea of linking bodies to suspects to crime scenes using evidence. And that's where botanical evidence can come into play. And that's, that's, um, that's so in one of the examples, that was used to sort of rule out uh, a very famous person, Ted Bundy, uh, as being in a certain location, which I've sort of found quite fascinating because it's, uh, if you could sort of give us that example, um, it's such a, it's such a small detail. It is. Yeah. That, that was a case where some, some markings can be put on a tree that suggested that it was, um, related to the kind of the, 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 the number of the body or the, 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 the person that being killed. And it was in a location where, where Bundy had been active, where he, they knew he may have buried some bodies and so forth. And uh, so they actually asked him, you know, did you, did you do this? And he said, he's, he apparently used to talk in the third person, but he said, no, Bundy wasn't there or something. Um, but they looked, at the, they looked at the tree and when, when trees get damaged, the bark will regrow. And uh, if it's a superficial damage, then um, it, it doesn't grow as much as, as if it's a, a deep cut. And so in this particular case, they'll be able to look at the amount, the extent of regrowth and work backwards to find, to work out when that damage occurred. And it turned out that Bundy really wasn't there. I think he was in Florida at the time. And so he was telling the truth for it in this case, <laughs> that he actually wasn't there. And so it was some, someone else, it was either unrelated or, or some prank. But now he got caught with some other botanical evidence that did catch him. Yeah, tell us about that. So that was um, when they finally caught him. I think it was maybe his last crime they, they caught him for. Uh, you know, he had a, he had a rental vehicle, and um, they, they they found soil and plant materials caught up in the undercarriage of the vehicle. And when they looked at that, they were able to match the the vegetation to the um, where they uh, found the body. So that linked him. Um, to the crime scene. So, so when I read that, I did. Th- <laughs> how how do you go about doing that? How 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 would you match vegetation in a sample like that? Because obviously, to uh, you know someone like myself, they, they would look very similar. I imagine. Um, how, how does a botanist identify? Start breaking down and, and analyzing, you know, the two samples. Yeah. Well, so I think in this case it was some leaves. And so you have to you know, take the, the fragments that you might find that are caught up in the undercarriage of the car and, and, and if the pieces of leaves, you'd take them back into the lab. You'd um, perhaps wash them carefully so you can look at the pieces and fragments. And if they're not something that's obvious, or even if they are, you would make a comparison match. So botanists have um, a herbaria. Uh, that are collections of dried plant materials mm-hmm. that are reference samples. Right. So, so Kew Gardens has one of the largest, and most complete ones in the world. 
And so you, you can take your sample and you can match it up against these knowns. Known. And you might have to look at microscopic characters for leaves. You'd be looking at uh, hairs on the leaves and the, um, the size of the cells, perhaps, the shape of the leaves, the lobing of the leaves, a lot of different features you'd look at. And it may take some time um, uh, to work out what what uh, different species you have. So you may have like you know four or five different leaf fragments representing two or three different species. And then you'd say, okay, well, um, you know, this this collection of species um, was also present at the crime scene, but not yeah. perhaps at the place where the person was living or, or claimed to be. And so, is is it a, is it a, again? It, forgive my naivety but is it is it a brute force sort of task or are there very uh are there significant uh, structures that you can look for that will put you in the right um the right branch of the sort of the tree of life to to, to understand what you're looking at um yes there are and and it it sort of depends upon what sort of material you're looking at. If you're looking at pollen or, or leaf fragments or seeds, you know, there'd be different sorts right, of characters cool. that you'd look at and so forth. But, uh, you know, certain plant families or plant groups have very characteristic features of them. I mean, you know, you probably recognize an oak leaf fairly obviously, right? And, and mm -hmm. so that would, you see that and you see that kind of the lobing on the leaf, the waviness on the outside, and that would probably right away, you could probably say, oh, I've got an oak of some sort. And then you've got to get down to what sort of oak is it? In Britain, you've maybe only got two different sorts of oak, native ones. In southern Illinois, where I am, there are 19 or so different species of oaks. And so it can get kind of tricky. Um, and that's when you have to look into, into details. And there are, there are books, and there's the herbaria. And um, for other sorts of plant materials, like wood, for example, uh, they've developed uh, computer databases and machine learning techniques uh, that can help speed up some of these things once those the, the, the right characters are looked at and it's kind of coded and keyed into the system of course um and then i, I want to just jump to another example so uh it's not just sort of what you step on or what lands on you it's uh also what's inside you mm, uh, yes what you've eaten um there's a fantastic example of how a scientist was able to to sort of figure out what a victim is eaten could you just sort of tell us about how? Yes. Uh, so, yes. So this is a, a, um, a botanist called Jane Bock, emeritus professor at the University of Colorado. And she kind of pioneered this approach where um, you might want to know what, uh, it might be useful to know what someone had eaten the last meal because that could help tell you where they've been. And so... Um, Basically, what they do is, is uh, when you've got a body, you, you take some material out of the intestine or the the or the stomach, and and look at it and see what plants are. And it turns out that when uh, when um, someone dies, the the stomach valves shut, and so nothing more escapes. So that's useful because then what's in the stomach at the time of death. Is you've got a, a kind of a timing because we we know roughly how long things stay in the stomach after you've eaten something a couple of three hours. So if you find it in the stomach, that means they probably ate it two or three hours ago. Right. So basically, what she what she did when she started this was um, you know take 
well, she was first of all given slides. She didn't want to touch the stuff, but <laughs> apparently she. Uh, <laughs> but I think she developed some tolerance towards this. But but anyway, you just you take the plant fragments that you extract from this this material collected from the stomach, this kind of a solution slurry sort of thing, and uh, you kind of wash it up and put it on some some microscope slides or on a, a petri dish and look under a microscope and the same sort of thing. You've got fragments now and you have to identify them. And so you're isolating the, what you believe of plant fragments. Yes. Yes, and then you can. It's pretty obvious if it's a plant fragment versus a, a beetle leaf or something else, you know. So you can you can tell that fairly routinely. And for plants that we eat, we don't eat a great deal of different sorts of plants. Uh, there's about sixty or seventy or so different sorts of plants that are, are likely to be in in our diet, and mm-hmm. most people eat far fewer than that. So you can narrow it down fairly quickly. And then it's a question of looking to see in, in the cases that she looked at, is it, is it lettuce or, or, or pepper or olive or something like that? And it could be seeds, it could be leaf fragments, depending upon the sort of plant. And, and did she, am I saying she, uh, to sort of gather evidence, she chewed a lot of food herself <laughs> yeah the and... beginning the, that's right there was no database <laughs> and so uh she wanted to kind of her reference samples to look like what it could be that she was looking at and yeah. uh, so she literally would take a piece of lettuce chew it i don't know 32 times you know like your grandmother always to tell you and <laughs> and then spit it out and and look at it and so she did that with a variety of different things uh, to build up a database and eventually published a, a, a manual that had uh, uh, electron microscope images of plant materials. I don't know if they're the ones that she had eaten or not, but uh, that was the idea. <laughs> as as cheated by Jane Park. <laughs> yeah. um, and then to go down even uh, further, you talk about how sort of uh we can even identify sort of plant genes in, mm. in cases could you just give us an an example of there how, how that that can be used to sort of help sol- solve a case yeah the first case of that was called the maricopa case place in maricopa county in arizona that's where phoenix is and this is a case mm. where there, there was a a, a a rape and a murder mm. and uh, they had a suspect um, from some other evidence and they found in the, the back of his pickup truck some seed pods of a, of a tree. And it's a fairly common tree, but there was several of these trees growing around where they found the body. That didn't help him too much because that tree grows elsewhere as well. And because he was saying, you know, I wasn't there, you know, uh, at least at first. Um, so um, this is a time when they were starting to use uh, genetic evidence in from humans, but they hadn't done it for plants before. So they, they pretty much just uh, used the same methods that were being developed for, for human forensic cases and took these seeds and they, they extracted the, the genes and they matched the genes of, of, from those seeds to the plant that was right by the body. So it, was a, it wasn't just the species, but the individual within the species that matched up. And so that put his pickup truck at the crime scene, that linkage we talked about before, based upon the genetic material, and so now that's something that can be can be re- routinely used um, in, in other cases. And can can you? Is it just seeds you can do that with? Can you do that with kind of a variety of plant matter like pollen? Mm-hmm. We talked about before. You can try and 
Yeah, yeah. So you could do it with plant fragments, leaves, pieces of wood, seeds, and so forth. Um, pollen. I'm not so sure about that because um, you tend you, well it travels, and you also tend to get um, uh, different species in the mix. You'd have to extract a single pollen grain. That could be could be trickier. Um, but uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're working out how to do that as well. And so, were there were there any cases in particular? As you know they're plentiful in the book but that really is either your favorite one to teach or that are really <laughs> stuck with you well the one we've already mentioned that uh, i always like to tell people about is the diet on drowning case <laughs> where they they pulled a body out of the hudson river in new york and um this is a case where um they got a suspect from other evidence fairly quickly and of course you know i wasn't there sort of thing um but they wanted to know if she'd actually drowned. It turned out what what the suspect had done is that he had drugged his his wife or partner and threw her in the, in the river. But she kind of woke up. <laughs> he didn't give her enough drugs, so then he went in and held her down, and ultimately she died from the drowning. And they used the diatoms to to show that and to show that she'd been drowned. But also the diatoms were on other um, materials that they found, um, like a wallet or some other, and some right. jewelry from the, matched the diatom, the species of diatoms that were in the river as well. So that's, that's a, a good case because you know, people always are interested in the, the drowning aspect. Um, if, so, if someone was listening to this and they wanted to start to understand the, the sort of, uh, botanical world a little better where, where would you suggest starting or how would you suggest beginning well just start walking around outside and looking at plants would be the obvious thing to do and um that you know the, in in britain there's a great history of of naturalists and botanists and botanical societies and so forth uh, that people could be still become members of and um there's a lot of books that you can use wildflower guides to help identify plants. But these days there's, there's um, phone apps that are, are, are getting really good. There's one called iNaturalist that is, is really good. And you just literally take your phone and you turn on the camera and you point it at the plant and take a picture. And then it, it uploads that picture into, and, and looks on its database and gives you suggestions as to what the name of that plant is. And it, once you um, put it on the, the database, then other people can look at that that picture image and say see if they agree or disagree with you. Oh okay. And so you get and so that's kind of fun uh, to use that. And do you I sensed in the book you, you I mean you have a sex segment where uh you talk about some of your pro, your your past professors who might have <laughs> scolded you for using the, books or Absolutely. <laughs> yes my my phd advisor in Bangor, where i did my phd he he wouldn't let us use books with pictures in <laughs> let alone a computer app of course they didn't exist then but he was very much old school you had to have your little hand lens that you used and and your, your flora it's called it's a book with his descriptions and keys to identify the plants and and will behold any student that was caught using a, a picture book and was there some benefit to that? What was he trying to sort of impart? Well, he he's right, of course, but uh, you know, pictures uh, and even these seek the the iNaturalist app and stuff like that. You can get it wrong because a lot of lot of different species are 
the, the difference between some species is incredibly difficult and you, you need right. to do in great depth to work out one species versus another. I mean, you know, you can tell a rose, but how many different sorts of roses are there? You look at all the cultivars that you can buy and, and, and telling them apart. Um, so it takes a, a great deal of knowledge to correctly identify and be sure that you you really know the name of something. And that can be really important in, in forensic cases to get mm-hmm. the name right. Um, so yeah, a, a botanist would not rely on a phone app or a, a picture book. So yeah, you, so you can get down to the the general group of plants fairly readily and and fairly accurately with these these other these apps and and picture books and so forth. But when you want to know exactly what sort of roses is, for example, then we use a, a flora is the name of the sort of book we use, and that'll have uh, a, a key, a dichotomous key. Is is it got this structure or that structure, or or are the leaves this length or that length, or right. Certain structures, this size or that size, and you get down to a name, and then and then you have to look at a description that's going to be like a paragraph long, and you know, very detailed information about a whole range of structures: um, the flowers, the seeds, the height of the plant, the leaves, and and sometimes almost microscopic characters uh, that, that you at the very least will need to hand lens to work out at that level of detail. So just. Just lastly, how how old is forensic botany as a discipline? I just say that it, it's not a totally new subject, and I, I do talk about this with Edmund Locard, who was the French mm. uh, police investigator back in the 1920s, who was really the first person to start using plants, and he talked about les poissons organiques. Sorry about my French, but means um, organic particles. And he was using them to, to help solve crimes back in the 20s. And, and, and he had a, a laboratory in Lyon in France, uh, which is the first sort of forensic lab, maybe even in the world, um, that he developed. Um, and just an example of one case where they, they found a body uh, out in the countryside somewhere. And the local gendarmes had like trampled all around it and destroyed, you know, and everything. Uh, but they they brought in some vagrants that might be suspects. And he noticed on one of them a seed, up on the jacket, caught up on the jacket of, of one of these suspects. And uh, he he knew, or he went back and found out that, um, or he identified that seed. At first, he thought it was a common dandelion. That was his first thought. But then he looked at it in more detail, looked at these detailed structures and realized it was quite a rare plant that was related to dandelions and went back and found there it was growing right next to where the body was found. Right. So that single seed provided the link from this suspect to the location where the body was found. And that, so I thought that was a, that's a really fascinating case in, in, a, in a time when you didn't have the, the high-powered microscopes that we have t- today or DNA evidence, just, just literally working out what that seed was, what plant species it happened to be, helped solve the crime. That was Professor David Gibson there, 
talking about one of the earliest recorded cases of a detective using botany to inform their investigation. If you'd like to find out more about the pursuit of forensic botany, do check out David's book, Planting Clues, How Plants Solve Crimes. It's on sale now and published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius Podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, do please come find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.